1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Richard Yeo about his new book, Notebooks, English, Virtuosi, and Early Modern Science. This came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. The book looks very carefully at the Discussion of, conceptualization of, and practice of note-taking and the keeping of notebooks, the making of notebooks, the thinking about the making of notebooks by English virtuosi, so people um, who were associated with the Royal Society and people who were not, in the context of early modern science, early modern intellectual life, and early modern thought. What it does is, among other things, so in addition to providing a really interesting window into the scholarly practices, really in terms of paper um, and writing implements and organization of some really crucial uh, figures in the history of science and the history of intellectual life, it also gives us a way to think about and a kind of set of case studies for thinking about analogs to precursors to and comparative cases that link to some practices of scholarly life that are crucial right now. So... Information management, um, the conceptualization of what information is, how to manage it, and how to relate it to the capacities of an individual mind and of collective um, groups of minds. This is very much something that many of us are interested in, either as part of our own craft or as a larger social phenomenon right now. So, among other things, Yo's book informs that with a historical case study um, that really grounds the a, a lot of the kind of in, in, more modern points that we could be thinking about that are related to this within early modern contexts. So it's a really fascinating set of case studies. Anyone interested in the history of the book, the history of notes, the history of writing practices will find much of interest here. It was a pleasure to talk with Richard about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Richard Yeo about his new book, Notebooks, English, Virtuosi, and Early Modern Science. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Richard. And thank you very, very much for navigating the time difference between our two places and for making the time to talk with me today about a book I really enjoyed. So welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
1: So Richard, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically what brought you to the field of the history of early modern science.
0: Ah, well, I knew you were going to ask that because you <laughs> mentioned it, but and uh, it's quite a long story, which I won't go back to, but um, what I'm working on now seems a long way from where I started. When I first got into history of science, uh, intellectual history, was on 19th century British debates about the nature and method of science, and I worked on William Ewell in particular, the man who invented the term scientist in the 1830s, so that's a long way, but the intermediate thing was having that book, which was called Defining Science, that's 1993, so we're we're talking uh, long periods here. I worked on 18th century enlightenment encyclopedias and particularly the um, background to the French encyclopédie in the um, case of the English cyclopedia by Ephraim Chambers in 1728. And during the course of that work, I was struck by the fact that in pitching these new scientific dictionaries called encyclopedias to the um, public, many of the uh, compilers uh, framed these huge works as commonplace books. Uh, they said you could read this as a commonplace book, and indeed some of them said I wrote and compiled this using my own commonplace book. So there's this amazing notion that these multi-volume dictionaries are uh, Relied on tiny uh, personal commonplace books, so that got me into note taking in a sense, and and now we're back where I am at the moment on 17th century scientific note taking.
1: Great. So you've already talked a little bit about how <clears throat> you came to this project, and just to remind listeners, the book explores, as you've been <clears throat> discussing just now, how some of the leading English scholars of early modern science used notebooks, and also. How they thought about and conceptualized and worked with um, note taking and information management, both the collection and the storage of information, and we'll talk about um, how how and what many of these terms mean in the context of early modern English society in the course of our conversation. So, as you, well. we'll Even though you've talked a little bit about how you came to this, I'd actually love to know a little bit more about how you decided to produce a book-length object about this topic. How did you decide, um, and what was the process in conceiving and then producing a work on note-taking as a standalone book? How did you come to that decision? Uh,
0: Well, that was uh a... a wish at the beginning, um, but I—it didn't look as if it would um, come about for quite some time. Because I, because of that work on 18th-century encyclopedias, <clears throat> I came across the fact that John Locke, the English philosopher and physician, was being cited as the model person on how to keep notes. In the 18th century, he became—he was the model. So I went back to look at Locke. And, um, well, I mean, Locke is such a formidable figure that it took me, uh, I was um, stuck on his notebooks for, for quite some time, um, thinking I would do something about Locke as as a philosopher and note-taker. Um, and the more I began to do that and to talk to um colleagues because of course this is, I was becoming, learning how to become an early modern scholar <laughs> having been in the 19th and now the 18th and th- now the 17th. That's not what historians of my generation did or do. They tend to burrow down. I, I should have stayed in the 19th century and drilled <laughs> long, long way down and still be there but I, I didn't and um, that's been exciting <laughs> but, but it's also terribly um, nerve-wracking because you end up feeling like a student again. Uh, and I relied on a lot of very good um, early modern colleagues to um, point me in the right direction. And I, I came to realize that I couldn't do a book on Locke and that wouldn't be the best way to go. And so I had to work sideways into all these other figures in in the Royal Society and around it, Some, many of them colleagues of Locke. And so, you know, I, I began to see the book around the personal note-taking of a range of figures who are connected under the institution of the Royal Society in some cases and more generally in terms of the um, European Republic of Letters because although I'm talking about uh, Britain and England quite a bit, all my figures have European connections. Um, So that that came through. And so then I realized it was a large task because each one of these figures um, have their own personal archive as it were of notes and papers and letters so I had to somehow master having almost mastered Locke's archive uh, with the help of some scholars in that area I then had to do something similar for um, Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, John Evelyn, uh, Samuel Hartlib. so (laughs) it, it became a It has to be a book because it's getting large and to control it I have to conceive of it as um, a combination of individual practices but also a um, a collective enterprise that um, uh, relied on shared conventions from the Renaissance period but um, became a debate about how to extend and modify those to to handle empirical uh, scientific inquiry.
1: So the book itself i <laughs> The uh, nature of the comments that you just made actually leads me really nicely to the question that I have to ask you, given the nature of the book itself and the nature of the topic that you're working on, and that is a study on on some level of note-taking and information management. So especially given what I imagine must have been the challenges of working with so much material and so many different personal archives and combining them and keeping notes of them um, into this study – Were there any aspects of your own note-taking and information management strategies and producers
0: that
1: you feel are notable or um, striking in terms of your own conception of normal scholarly practice?
0: Uh, When I um, began to get seriously into the whole question of um, note-taking as a 17th and, and earlier Renaissance practice that had precepts and advice manuals, um, which I then talk about in this book, I, I soon realized I was breaking every possible rule. And, you know, I was my library uh, books, you know, had a little uh, sprouting yellow stick-on things coming out of them. Um, I was not a good a uh, systematic note-taker at all. Um, but I had to be- become one to some extent. And, um, well, I was doing it in, you know, the, about eight to nine years ago, so well and truly into digital technology. So I don't think um, I had any index cards, which is interesting, because all my previous books would have uh, sprouted index cards everywhere. No, I, I, um, I worked from um, Word Files, which I um, – uh, I think I, I named them either in terms of the um, people. Once I realized they were key people, uh, I named them under that. And then eventually under themes when these began to crystallize. So I would be able to look up a file, and they would be under various folders, you know, so there eventually obviously would have been one on memory and, you know, one on the Royal Society and so on, and I could get into that folder and find a file uh, which would have a text that I'd read, page numbers and so on. So, I mean, it, it's not a, a beautiful system by any means, and, and probably... Um, uh, finding things is obviously key, which these people in the seventeenth century realized. but I think i I relied on memory uh, heavily uh, um, as I was doing it because um, i was because I was re- reviewing and going over material so often, um, I usually had no trouble finding where it was. I hardly ever had to use the general search function of the computer, although now, having been out of it for a while, that's exactly what I have to do. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's really interesting also, given um, what I'm sure that we'll talk about in the course of our conversation, which is the rela- a major theme of the book, and that's the relationship between memory and note-taking practices. So we'll get there. Sure, yeah. Now, a focus on the relationship between memory and record-keeping in the early modern management of information is one of several major historiographical interventions that the book is making and that the book lays out in the prefatory material. So in addition to exploring this relationship between memory and note-taking, the book also looks very closely at the relationship implicitly sometimes and explicitly other times between uh, print and manuscript culture. And it also is informing how we understand the problematic, as you put it in the book, of the two cultures problem and the ways that individuals moved among the realms that later became codified as separate areas of intellectual inquiry that is philological and empirical scientific inquiry. So the book is going to, in its explorations of note-taking practices, um sequentially also in the course of the different chapters speak to some of these larger issues that have that are of import and interest to I think early modern history and historiography um writ large as well as speaking specifically to issues in the history of science. Now, after the prefatory materials that lay out some of this historiographical background, the book moves to an introduction that introduces um, some of the main actors of the book. And these are the figures that show up in the title, the English virtuosi. So to get us started, could you uh, talk a little bit for listeners about who these people are? Who are the English virtuosi? And what do we need to understand about their relationships or not with the Royal society in order to understand the work that you'll be doing with them over the course of the book.
0: Yes, well, there's probably, I'm sure there's a lot more to say about the term virtuoso in the 17th century and why, in particular, it was adopted by many of the leading figures in the royal society, which, of course, became... 1660 and became royal with a Charter in 1662. Um, In fact, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary online, their first definition of virtuoso says a learned person, especially a scholar, a scientist, a natural philosopher, e.g. a member of the Royal Society. So so these Royal Society figures have managed to – Link that word virtuoso to science. Um, and of course, at the time, the word from um, Italian had more of a connotation of um, uh, knowledge of the fine arts, um, painting, sculpture, collection of objects, um, possibly sometimes with a negative um, connotation that they were dilettantes but uh, these royal society figures fairly early uh, adopted the label of virtuoso without being read um, by it and um, I think I quote somewhere in, in the book that they were very happy to say that um, the king um, Charles II was also a virtuoso um, he's the one who granted them the charter of course. so I think uh, I don't go into the background of that word. I'm, I'm sure it's probably been done and more could be done about it. But the, I think the key thing for them was that um, they were virtuoso in the sense of being free and curious and not bound by uh, uh, traditional learning such as the universities, obviously. And virtuoso also was linked with uh, invention, so practical technological invention, but also intellectual invention and being willing to break um, traditional boundaries. Uh, so I think that's <clears throat> what is suggested by it. And then the apparent paradox um, mm-hmm. in my book is that these say they're modern, and that, that's a term they keep on using, we are the moderns, um, and we're virtuosi and we're curious and we're doing new things, um, they rely heavily and they're not uh, worried about saying we're using uh, these notebooks which were, n- for their contemporaries, attached to uh, textual philological learning, um, either in the sense of uh, Renaissance humanist learning and also in the uh, pedagogy of the grammar school and the university. So it was very book-based, um, uh, concerned with memorizing to a large extent. And the connotation there was that um, anyone using notebooks and commonplace books, which I, we can explain in a moment, um it doesn't sound like a modern at all. It doesn't sound like someone doing new. It sounds like someone just uh, glossing and choice quotations, rehearsing a c- canonical literature. So that, that's one of the opening um, tensions in the book, I suppose. Great.
1: So you just brought up the... Subject of commonplace books. So that's a really nice place for us to go next, I think. The chapter um, that we're talking about looks at the attitudes of the virtuosi toward reading, memory, learning, science, and their relationships. And it introduces the kinds of notes and notebooks that are used by these virtuosi and that are discussed more broadly in the context. Of early modern Europe. So, what is a notebook um, as conceived here? And can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of notebooks that show up as being central to your study? So, the um, what is a difference between, or what are the important aspects the, of the differences between commonplace books, say, and journals or diaries?
0: Yes. Well, the the commonplace book, uh, so called, um, was the standard. Notebook favoured and promoted by Renaissance humanists, such as Erasmus of Rotterdam. And the term commonplace uh, goes back to um, the Latin, um, Greek and Latin notion of uh, locus communis, a a commonplace in which one collected arguments on a common theme, or... Then in the Renaissance, in particular, uh, quotations on a common theme, and these common themes were went under the notion of headings, just heads they said, or topics, and sometimes titles. So those three words, titles, um, heads, topics, were seen to be the. Generic categories, and these could be for the Renaissance humanists things like honor, beauty, love, friendship. These were themes, topoi. Uh, um, They were shared across a a wide range of educated people, and the um, young student um, was encouraged to select quotations from major. Roman authors, um, Livy, Ovid, Cicero, Seneca, uh, on those themes and co- in a commonplace book collect the quotations on a common theme in a common place. So that's literally what it means. You put um, cognate information, quotations in A commonplace. And interesting, of course, now and from the late 19th century, I think the term commonplace means pretty much um, something unremarkable every day. The exact antithesis of what it meant in the 17th century, when it it didn't mean just every day and unremarkable, it meant something worthy of being remarked upon, worthy of keeping a commonplace in a notebook for uh, memory rehearsal and future consultation. So that, they, that was the key kind of notebook uh, in the 17th century. But um, alongside it, uh, of course, was the, the journal or diary, which we now know today because that still exists more or less as it did in the 17th century, whereas the commonplace book um, no longer really exists in the way it, it used to. Um, so part of my discussion is that um, the 17th century scientific virtuos were brought up using commonplace of the traditional kind, and they did exactly that themselves. They all collected um, quotations and reading uh, selections from books, um, some more traditionally than others. John Evelyn's commonplace books looks more like a Renaissance commonplace book than John Locke's, for example, or even – but the other um, thing that comes into play is that there's a question of whether uh, the notebook uh, – the, sorry, the uh, journal uh, where you're noting things down as they occur day by day, as you read them day by day, as you observe things day by day, chronological order, without um, putting them under um, thematic heads, maybe the thought was um, – This is something I asked and investigated, whether for empirical scientific inquiry, these journals were more suited than the commonplace for. Great.
1: Thank you. Now, as you talk about the different kinds of journaling and and commonplace that's happening in this context and in the body of this chapter, you move us toward a central theme of the book itself and also of not just the end of this chapter, but the next one. And that is the ways that English virtuosi in this context were using, manipulating, innovating, and discussing note-taking technologies in relation to memory, and to memory in different senses. So Mm -hmm. chapter two actually looks really carefully at humanist and also Jesuit practices of note-taking and memory training and sets the stage for this theme as it's going to recur in different contexts and in the work of different authors later on in the book. So as you set out the story here, there's actually two kinds of memory um, that become really important for our, for our understanding how um, English and are go- are going to think about the relationship between note-taking and memory. This is, on the one hand, the simple retention of things, and then also the regaining of them when forgotten. And you talk about the distinction between remembering and recollecting, um, recall and recollection. So can you talk about... Um, Can you use this as a place to talk about the importance of these different forms of memory? Why does this matter, and what aspects of this way of understanding memory do we need to understand in order to understand the arguments that you're going to make about them later in the
0: book? Yes, well, this um, is a fundamental um, point. Um, So the difference between memory or remembering and recollection of course, is not uh, new to this period. Um, For these writers, I think um, Aristotle is the major source, and he distinguished between memory and recollection in the following way. First of all, he said that memory um, is shared by the animals, uh, whereas recollection is something distinctive and intellectual. I suppose... um, as we do today, uh, so in the 17th century, o- often these terms were just allied, the, the distinctions weren't made unless uh, a specific discussion about them. But um, one very crude and simple way of thinking of it is that um, for Aristotle, um, if um, you ask me uh, what street I lived in when I was growing up, um, if I remember that, it comes straight to me and I I tell you it's, you know, um, Smith Street or something. Uh, Or I can give you my phone number immediately uh, by memory. But um, if I'm walking down a street, not the one I lived in, uh, and uh, something happened there significantly 10 or 20 years ago, uh, or or if someone reminds me that um, we were together somewhere – there is a sequence of prompting going on um, which allows me to recollect um, things that I wouldn't have um, been able to recall immediately if you ask me. so recollection relies on prompting um, the memory to recover things it once had but might have lost so it, it, recollection uh, for Aristotle Also, um, then sets off a train of um, associations which can be seen as an intellectual search of the mind for the thing uh, which is prompted. Um, So that uh, recollection becomes an intellectual process. Now, and how this works um, with the notebook um, story is that commonplace books were traditionally. Uh, used as memory aids in two senses. One, uh, you could go through your quotations and rehearse them, memorise them for later use in writing and uh, speech in oratory. Or secondly, um, you could go to the commonplace, uh, to a heading on a particular topic, and once you began to read your notes, your quotations or whatever, that would... um, prompt a series of recollections about more than the note contained. That's the crucial thing, that recollection from a note in a notebook can lead you back to the source, to the context, to the circumstance in which you made the note, so you get more than the actual note Um more than the thing written on the page. You get a recollection of memories around it. And that's why um, the notion of uh, commonplace books as copious notebooks for the 17th century people, for both my scientific figures and, and the uh, more textual ones, um, copious um, not necessarily or always in the sense that the book was just huge and stocked with um, material. Uh, it might have been a book, but it was copious because it encouraged uh, recollection of a, of a profound kind. Um, now, it's, I think, for these 17th century figures, particularly someone like John, John Locke, he collects commonplace books and we might talk about the fact that he actually, as I said at the very beginning, he uh, he wrote a, a short piece in a French journal uh, on his own note-taking method, which was taken up. But um, for these people, um, they are more interested in the recollection side than the memory side, and eventually they, they are actually interested in recording and retrieving, uh, even if – recollection doesn't work they're interested in recording and uh, leaving it for a future generation i suppose um one other thing i'll i say in case i said this when you asked me about the different kinds of notebooks before one of the um key things that these people um rely on is um the notion of transferring material from one book to another so Things could be collected in a journal out in the field or in the laboratory, uh, and then later uh, transferred in some way to a commonplace book. Sometimes uh, a much larger physical book um, that you wouldn't take around with um, Locke, for example, didn't take his large commonplace books to France where he lived for three and a half years. Only uh, small notebooks and used them as journals, but. Um, the transfer thing is quite a powerful mechanism because you can then take something that's got a chronological date next to it in a diary or journal and put it under a heading in a large commonplace book. So you get the the balance between logical, circumstantial particulars anchored in time and place and then categories, which you had worked on before. And I think that is – that is that. Uh, I think that is what almost all of my people um, begin to use and and stick with. Great.
1: Now, one of the people who comes up at the end of this um, part of the book, or at the end of this chapter, rather, who's particularly interested in recollection is Bacon. Bacon. Now,
0: Bacon, mm-hmm.
1: um, you talk about him in this context in terms of his interest in notes, recollecting, and retrieval. According to Bacon, the benefits of recollection come only to the person who's actually made the notes in the first place. And he's also very interested, as you put it here, um, in the importance of notes in preserving matters of detail. So for Bacon, notes have to be relied on not just to trigger your memory, but to preserve accurate records of some sort of information. Now this brings us to another really important aspect of the book, and that is um, the embeddedness of these English virtuosi within a larger project of what you call Baconian natural history. So as we move to Bacon um, and we try to understand this important work that the book's doing, can you talk a little bit about that? What about uh, Baconian natural history um, as a method, um, as much as anything else, is crucial for us to understand, in order for us to understand the role of note-taking and the arguments, therefore, that you're making in the book?
0: Yes, well, Francis Bacon, although he doesn't appear in the title, Of my book, of course, none of the names appear there, but he he hasn't got a chapter uh, named after him as uh, Locke has and Boyle has and Hartlip and Hook, so on. Um, He's absolutely fundamental, and uh, there's probably as much in this book on Bacon scattered throughout there is on on some of the other figures. Um, Well, historians of science of the 17th century are well aware that um, Bacon was the sort of hero um, of the Royal Society. He appears on on the frontispiece of um, Thomas Spratt's History of the Royal Society, which was um, produced only seven years after it began and was a pretty much a polemic work, um, a work of apologetics, I should say. So Bacon uh, and Bacon's vision of what empirical collaborative science could be is, is fundamental. Um, and so is the notion of natural history, which needs a little bit of explanation Uh, for people who don't work on the 17th century, because natural history now and from probably the 18th century onwards, we tend to think of um, taxonomy of of plants and animals, um, botany, uh, zoology. That's what natural history came to mean. And and it's always been uh, distinguished from natural philosophy. So natural philosophy is um, about, uh, in technical terms, what, people called the mixed mathematical sciences, the disciplines of astronomy, mechanics, optics, um, um, in which Newton and Hooke were large figures, of course. And natural philosophy um, was seen to be searching for causes uh, at the uh, fundamental level of natural processes, whereas natural history, um, and this is how Bacon thought of it, was more about description classification, as it was later on, um, but collecting uh, what Bacon continually referred to as particulars as opposed to universals, particular details, uh, uh, many of which uh, didn't have a pattern to them. Uh, You were not sure. They belonged in your current intellectual schema. But Bacon said we need natural histories, that is, uh, careful descriptions of a a huge range of phenomena. And um, I think I describe I think he's got 47 or so natural histories that he lays out uh, and gives examples of what they could be. So as a method, natural history is this careful description, classification, sorting of detailed empirical material. Um, and that's what many of these virtue virtuosii are doing. They know about um, natural philosophy. Hooke, of course, is a natural philosopher as well. Um, but Boyle, um, Evelyn, Locke, many of the people I'm talking about are doing natural histories of very new areas, such as um, the nature of human blood, um, the movement of uh, sap in, in tree plants. Uh, they're doing um, what falls under and did fall under at the time, um, medicine, physiology, chemistry, uh, botany. They're doing those things which at that time are not capable of producing general laws, certainly not based on any mathematical formula as, as in the case of Newtonian science. So the key thing... About Bacon f- is that he legitimates this natural history endeavor and argues that it may not have the glamour of natural philosophy, but in fact it is the foundation of all natural philosophy and of all future natural philosophy. And you must begin with natural histories. And uh, that immediately raised the question of. Uh, If Bacon is right and this process requires huge collections of data in which many people collaborate and which will not be completed in their lifetimes, it is therefore a long-term generational thing, um, there has to be information management. There has to be some careful way of keeping the information so that it can be used by other people. And so note-taking under Bacon began to raise more than the um, usual commonplace book set of questions because eventually the notes were, although collected by an individual, um, had to be understood and used by other other people. So I think Bacon sets up a, a series of um, issues and p- problems that these people benefit greatly from. And there is a coming back to the point that you made about um, recollection only working for the person who made the note. That is very important thing. Um, Bacon's not the only person to recognize that, but he does make something of it. Now, and that could seem to be a spanner in in the works of our collaborative note-taking project, because if, as I've already um, said, the power of notes was seen to be not just that you could rehearse and memorize them, but that they would act as stimuli as prompts uh, to further recollection, uh, the, that only worked if you had made the note. So um, if you happen to look at one of my scribbled notes that I um, mentioned before were not taken down with great system, um, you would have something in front of you. But but if I look at it, um, and if you do the same with your notes um, – all these other uh, connotations and associations will come back. And that leads to um, a capacity to um, combine uh, ideas in certain ways that you hadn't before or to recover things that you haven't got with you at the moment. But that only works for the individual. So Bacon put that out uh, into the public debate and um, what he went on to say was that... Often not with great, uh, in great detail, but he did make the point that for the collection of these particulars, we need very, very careful, exact notes. And, and certainly, he said, we don't want flowery, uh, textual, literary notes. We want very careful, empirical descriptions of things. And I think these... Um, Scientific Virtue of the Royal Society uh, took that on quite seriously. And um, in my chapters on Locke and Boyle, individual chapters, I show how they wrestle um, issue that the notes uh, have still got to work for them. Otherwise, it would be ridiculous to lose, to sacrifice that power of recollection. But um, they have to be notes that will work for them in the future, in their old age, and also for people they might want to share those notes with. And uh, a large part of the discussion in the early Royal Society becomes what kind of protocols might work for note-taking so that note-taking could be a collaborative exercise.
1: Now the rest of the book really looks in different ways at this tension and the negotiation of this tension between the individual and the collectivity over and in terms of note-taking. Chapters four through seven each look closely at the work of a central figure or figures and carefully considers the way that these figures conceptualized and also practiced the relationships among note-taking memory, and information management, so display and retrieval. We won't have time to talk about each one of these chapters, but I want to take us into at least a couple of them um, to bring out some of the interesting elements of the some of the figures that you're talking about. One of those figures is the focus of chapter four, and this is Samuel Hartlib. Now, chapter four focuses on Hartlib and focuses on also his enormous archive, So because the the record, um, or you make a point in this chapter of highlighting the enormity of the Archive Left um, in its relationship with Samuel Hartlib, can you talk a little bit for listeners about Hartlib's importance Um, as a note taker or in terms of his information management and about his archive. um, What is, what for you was important and notable about working with the archive you were working with for Hartlib and how did that shape the kind of argument you're making about him here in this part of the book?
0: Yes. Well, I Hartlib was um, one of the people I came to towards the end of my research I started off, as I mentioned before, with <clears throat> John Locke because I knew about him from his 18th century uh, reputation and then the other scientific virtue of leading members of the Royal Society. But Hartley was never a member of the Royal Society. And um, he he is um, different on, on several levels from the other key people in this book. And I came to him late and I... Um, uh, I'm terribly grateful for the uh, work that had already been done on Hartley. Much more work than um, I was able to um, get across in that chapter. Um, but Hartley um, is from an earlier generation. He, he's um, he's a, a refugee from um, from Europe, from from Germany, who comes to England. Uh, and particularly London I don't think he ever left London um, and he sets himself up in the late 1630s and 1640s as an intelligence broker and in, uh, um, in uh, um, l- largely um, Protestant religious circles at first but then more broadly Republic of Learning circles um, and um, he's Sharing letters and information uh, around a group that extends into some of the people who soon become early members of the Royal Society. So, the young Robert Boyle knew about Hartley because Hartley had an interest in chemistry uh, and in, in general medical matters. Um, so, Hartley is earlier, he's, he's not English. Uh, He's not a member of royal society. He would have liked to have been but was never elected. Partly, um, importantly here, because of um, political religious issues, Hartlib was uh, a Puritan – on the Puritan wing of Protestantism. Uh, He was – would have been seen as part of the – Cromwell regime. He was attached and new people in that regime. With the 1660 restoration um, of uh, of Charles II, um, Charles I having been beheaded um, under the Cromwell era, Hartley and a number of other people in his circle were uh, now. Outsiders, they were on the wrong side of the political and religious settlement. So that's another reason he never became a member of the Royal Society. But w- what he envisaged um, with some of his uh, circle in the 1640s uh, is very similar to the Royal Society notion of a learned scientific institution, a center of information and intelligence. Uh, so, I mean, in a sense, he's he's a, a spiritual precursor of the Royal Society, one that the Royal Society did not publicly acknowledge. But uh, people like uh, Robert Boyle, William Petty, another person in my book, who's a key inventor and um, physician, um, John Beale, an eccentric... Um, the Somerset Virtuoso, he's called. Um, his letters just on, they go on and on and on. He's just un, a completely unstoppable um, intellectual uh, news machine, um, terribly useful to um, Henry Oldenburg – Another um, uh, non-English crucial figure in the Royal Society became their secretary and founder of the Transactions Philosophical Transaction. So um, Hartlib is in correspondence with Oldenburg. Beale is funneling information from the Hartlib circle to Oldenburg and the Royal Society. So there, there's a interesting set of connections there, um, between. Th- this older generation that Hartley represents and the younger virtuosi. Now, why uh, Hartley would have to figure in a book about notebooks in this period is that he was um, an extraordinary collector of information in the form of notes, not only in the form of notes because um, a large part of his um, Machinery were, were letters and correspondence which would come to him to be passed on and he would then copy key parts of letters into his diary which he called his ephemerides which is another term for the diary or journal in that period uh, with an astrological um, connotation and, and an astronomical one as well. Um, as far as I know, um, Hart did not keep a commonplace book, but he kept this um, diary, although a diary that didn't have any dates in it except the date of the year, so he kept one from about um, uh, about 1635, I think, um, that would have to be checked in my book, I'm now, I'm not, my memory is failing me, um, He kept one uh, over a period of, of, you know, at least a decade or more. Um, And that is one of the things now – I will just say something about this Hartley archive because um, uh, it is of interest to um, scholars of the period and will be to other people that um, it's a case of an archive that was once lost – um, all archives' material was lost. No one knew where it was um, from about 1700 onwards. And it turned up uh, in the 1920s and 30s, um, which I describe in, in that chapter. And we now have it at Sheffield Library in the, in the University Library. But even when it was there, it was pretty... Uh, formidable and more virtually inaccessible. Uh, I've been there, and you would need to really be there for a long time to to master it. But um, it went through two phases which made it more accessible. What I had to rely on were, was a, a very um, slightly dodgy CD-ROM version of the whole archive that um, uh, worked at first but then didn't keep up with the... Um, the uh, new, um, you know, Windows versions as, e- as each version changed as, as your computer updated without you knowing, uh, suddenly the CD-ROM was unrecognisable and uh, couldn't use it. So I re- I relied on that in very funny ways. I had to keep one laptop uh, completely. Um, from all electrical activities, <laughs> so it wouldn't update. And then I'd put in the, the CD-ROM and and work on it. Um, I, I mention that because now, um, only in the last three or four months, uh, the whole thing is online, um, which makes my chapter look as if I'm, I simply um, put in a few word searches and it all fell into place. But I can assure you I had to rely on... Uh, pre uh, earlier forms of digital technology and and the real thing and it 's a very difficult archive to get into and other people um, who've worked on it, the people who produced it um, know a, a lot more about it, but I ended up mainly just using his ephemerides uh, the diary and um, that is estimated that it 's you know about three hundred or more thousand words and um uh, it is a journal, not a commonplace book, so although what, what going back to this interesting combination between journals which are chronological and commonplace books which are categ- by category or subject or topic, um, yeah Hartley seems to have skipped the commonplace book unless there was one that was lost, and he 's got this uh, diary that it's a kind of a logbook, really, just of his thoughts and information, either thoughts that he's having or uh, things that he's copying from letters or books into. But what he does is he reserves a margin in the commonplace book and puts a heading next to the various entries. And so there we have a commonplace book technique um, applied to a journal. And he does say somewhere in the actual journal, but maybe the thing to do is to um, keep these marginal headings and then get a separate notebook altogether from the diary, which would be an index to all diaries, and um, alphabetically um, list the headings and then put, uh, say, journal 1 or journal 1648, page 29, and, and you'd have a retrieval mechanism and index to all your um, notes in the journals relying on effectively commonplace headings although much more expanded headings than the usual uh, literary and moral and rhetorical ones so I, I, I think that he you know he's doing that in the 1630s and 40s and uh, that it, not by direct um, knowledge or copying that is the kind of um, System that these people uh, tend to use.
1: Now, this is after a chapter that looks at Heart, Live, and the Circle. There's a series of chapters that we won't have time to get into in any detail, just given the amount of time that we have. Um, but I just want to gesture at some of the important figures here and just mention for listeners so that they know that it's there and they can go um, read this when they read the book, and I hope listeners will. Um, you talk um, in a couple of chapters about Robert Boyle, uh, who was really interested in the relationship between memory and information management. And you talk about him um, and his u- use of loose sheets for notes. He's called an exemplar of mismanagement of information. And there's some really interesting discussion of the kind of chaos um, seemingly of his note-taking um, and, it's, and, and also of his relationship or his conception of the relationship between his own note-taking strategies and recollection and memory more generally. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk just a little bit about one of the figures that you've repeatedly brought up, um, and that also is very interesting in terms of this um, archaeology of different methodologies for note-taking, which is a lot of what comes out of this part of the book, sort of a really close look at the archaeology of methodology of note-taking, and that is John Locke. So Chapter 7 looks very closely at Locke, and it focuses on the theory and method behind his very prodigious note-taking, and this is something he undertook throughout his lifetime. Now, as you've mentioned already, very briefly, one of the notable things about Locke in this context is he actually self-consciously develops a new method for organizing his notes, so could you talk very just briefly a little bit about this new method? What is new um, that we can that for us to understand about Locke's method and what's important about the innovation that he's making um in order for us to understand the larger argument that you're using that point to make in the context of this part
0: of the book? Yes, thanks. Um yeah, that is um Luckily, there is a chapter, a large chapter on it because it's a a, a large question. Yes, well, the obvious thing is why does Locke call his method New Method? Um, The title um, in English of the anonymous article he wrote in uh, the Bibliotheque Universelle in 1686. Um, It's new because mainly... He, never, he by the way he doesn't actually explain uh, why it's new. He doesn't um, spell this out, but I, I'm fairly sure we can put together from other things. Locke says, as I do in that chapter, and in some earlier articles, I wrote, you know, what he means here is that he's breaking from what he sees as the traditional commonplace. Method of grouping, of pre assigning, pre allocating pages in a notebook to a common topic. That, that is what people were told to do. That you, because you were dealing with shared topics that you knew you had to know about, discuss, and rehearse in um, grammar school and university, you, you could map your notebook out before you even made a note. You could put um, the key headings down and allocate probably a double opening of a a page to each one. Now, that's specifically what Locke says you must not do, and he discovered early on that that wouldn't work for what he wanted. Um, So what... um, it 's almost impossible to <laughs> explain Locke's method um, without seeing the index that he uses to um, uh, for all his commonplace books but it, uh, all his notebooks. what it means is that he um he, he chooses a heading um, that will he's likely to remember for the entry that he's making, and so many of his uh, uh medical entries at first from med- Books when he was training to be a physician. Um, so there might be one for, you know, sanguis in Latin, sanguis blood. Um, and what he does um, is he takes the first letter S and the next vowel of that key term. So S is the first letter, and the next vowel happens to be A, and S A becomes the combination that he indexes. Uh, and he puts um, Sunguis at the top of the of an open page, a free page, and from now on, every entry that goes there will have to be an essay term. Mm-hmm. I can't think of one <laughs> off the top of my head. I should have rehearsed that, but um, I explain all that in the chapter with with the illustration. So, all the headings on that double opening will be essay headings. In other words, they will have nothing necessarily to do with each other. Uh, the next one could have nothing to do with medicine at all. Uh, could be, uh, could be from his travel or whatever. So um, these pages, when you look at them, then they're going to be of no use to rehearse a topic because they're not going to have cognate topics there. What what it's about is retrieval. You you um you know that you're looking for Sanguis. You look in the index at the front under in the S A cell, and that will give you the page number or numbers on which essay headings will be, and then you, you go to them. And then, of course, Locke uh, later on, of course, develops a technique of um, carefully bibliographical bibliographical citations will take you from that extract back to the book. So that's that. But there is another way of um, saying something about Locke, um, which um, you alerted to me too. a moment ago when you mentioned Boyle and loose sheets. So another thing that Locke is definitely not doing um, is he's not from Robert Boyle and other people who had abandoned, to some extent, the um, bound notebook and, and simply used loose sheets of paper on which they... Wrote down, usually not under headings at first, but more like Hartley on the run as things happen, and maybe maybe then collect and um, bind those together in in smaller booklets. Um, Locke um, is traditional and and uh, not novel in the sense that he he keeps carefully bound notebooks. They, they just look like traditional, commonplace books in that sense. And he, he does not like the idea of these loose notes, um, partly because he would have known from Robert Boyle, whom he worked with, that Boyle was continually losing loose sheets, entirely losing them. Uh, so Locke, um, it's a combination, his method of traditional techniques of, a fixed notebook where you know the material will be, but not doing it as the Renaissance humanists suggested. Although I should say here that Locke, and this is a tactic of many of these virtuosi they tend to set up straw men. They tend to make the commonplace book sound worse than it was when when they want to attack it or say we're doing something new. So as... As many historians, um, Tony Grafton and Blair and others have shown, the um, humanists and various um, scholars in the 15 and 1600s had already done lots of new things under the commonplace book rubric and, and weren't as rigid as Locke um, imagines or pictures them Locke would have known that they weren't, but in order for contrast, he pictures them as if they were doing nothing new. But um, many of these techniques were already in play in textual uh, philological commonplace books, and Locke makes a point of um, uh, continuing them and enforcing them uh, for all kinds of note-taking, including... of course, importantly, empirical scientific note-taking. So I suppose um, Locke, um, I call the chapter on Locke, I think, the the master Mm note-taker because not that there aren't many other people who uh, kept as many notes as Locke did, Um, There were definite rivals um, before him, which I mentioned, but he really does uh, think about it uh, explicitly, and he's unusual uh, to have actually, amongst the moderns, as it were, amongst the modern scientific virtuosi, to have um, written a sort of advice manual on it, and Advice manuals, as you mentioned earlier in chapter two, about humanist and Jesuit note taking. That, that's what was common. They, they did produce manuals on how to take notes. So Locke's short manual is a is a modern, new version of that um, genre, but but saying something different.
1: Great. Right. Well. So Richard, we're almost out of time, but I want to just give, um, so rather than asking you to talk too much about it, I just will briefly um, gesture at some of the important things happening in chapter eight of the book before we move to our conclusion. Um, Now chapter eight for listeners who are interested in this moves us from the discussion of individuals to focusing on something that has sort of been undergirding a lot of the discussion at the individual level that happens earlier in the book and this is the issue of collective the, the collectivity. So chapter 8 looks at collective note-taking and turns to the particular challenges of note-taking um, when it's happening in the context of collaborative projects. So it looks at, in turn, um, the efforts by some members of the Royal Society to make guidelines for collecting and storing information. It looks at the work of and the ideas of a figure you've mentioned um, a little bit earlier, Henry Oldenburg, the information manager of the Royal Society. It takes us into several examples, that of John Ray, uh, Martin Lister People who are working on plants and animals, working on proverbs, um, using uh, technologies called queries to gather information collectively. And then finally, what it does is it takes us into the example of Robert Hooke, um, who's, as you show here, who has a position on note taking and its importance that's deeply embedded within his own idea of the creation of an institutional archive and the kinds of note taking practices that would help create this sort of institutional notebook and institutional, um, archive. So the move from the individual to the collective is something that's very much an important focus of this last part of the book. Now, Richard, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And even though we've been speaking for an hour, there's so much richness in terms of examples, um, concepts that you're bringing up and arguments that you're making throughout the nine chapters of the book. But is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for reader, for listeners, rather, who haven't yet had an opportunity to become readers, um, and, and especially perhaps for those who haven't yet had an opportunity to become readers of the book?
0: Um, yes, well, thanks for your summary of um, that last series of points, which goes to this tension of uh, the fact that each individual um, could easily be a master of their own note-taking, but the problem was how to have a collaborative note-taking such as the Royal Society and that's what Hook, amongst others, wrestled with. I suppose one theme that comes up there, but also throughout the book, is um, I think there is a strong connection between what these people said about note-taking and what they began to imagine as long-term scientific inquiry, which, as we know, becomes part of what's often called the scientific ethos, that um, what the individual is working on in his or her own time uh, may not necessarily bear fruit or certainly not a major discovery, a Nobel Prize or, or a practical uh, application in medicine or technology, but they are contributing uh, in their own generation as a collaborative um, exercise, but they know uh, and have to be prepared to accept that the major discovery might come after them. And the um, these people uh, build a case for that when it wasn't uh, an obviously acceptable thing. I mean, the um, satire uh, play called The Virtuoso, uh, 1676, uh, lampoons this notion that the Royal Society has been collecting and all sorts of things. They've done nothing. Nothing has come out, the um, argument is. They had to make a case that scientific research was a long-term investment and this is where notes uh, which certainly would always have to be um, valued for their individual um, power to prompt personal recollection have to be imagined as um, part of a crucial long-term archive for future science. So I, I think that connection between note-taking, long-term inquiry, and the defense of a scientific ethos is, is an underlying theme.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Now, now that the book is out, and congratulations um, on the book, if I haven't already said that. It's, it's a really thought-provoking and very thoughtfully done book.
0: Well, thank you. Of yeah.
1: course. What's next for you? Is there anything that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about?
0: Um, well, I can answer that uh, in you know, a, a negative way that I, I don't think I could um, tackle another book based on such a, an enormous set of um, archive material, particularly – living in Australia and needing archives overseas, even though it's becoming possible to rely on digital things much more. So I I don't see myself doing more on that. There are some smaller things connected with this that I'm finishing off. Um, I haven't got a major project in mind, but I'd like to write um, a shorter book and um, uh, one less reliant on archives. Not that I haven't been thoroughly excited and – about getting into each of these archives and attempt something with them. Um, I think um, my horizons <laughs> somewhat, uh, at least for a while, um, you know, on more manageable things.
1: Great. Well, thank you again, Richard. It really was a pleasure. The book is fantastic and I will um, look forward to reading whatever you decide to write about next. So thanks for making the time.
0: Good. Thank you for asking me again.